Father, we simply ask this morning that you would do what we just sang, that you would speak and you would grow and shape us, you would fashion us, Lord, in the likeness of Christ and for your purposes. Uh, Lord, in thinking about that and thinking about um, your purposes in, in Sunday school as we considered your sovereign power over all things, um, Lord, I pray that we would joyfully submit our purposes to yours. And Lord, joyfully that we would give ourselves over to you today as we see you in the word. In Christ's name, amen. As a turn, if you would, in your Bibles to John 14. John 14, we're going to be looking this morning at verses 25 through 31. John 14, 25 through 31. It's Thanksgiving week, and so I was thinking about that this morning and thinking about all that we have to be thankful for. And really, the things that we've t- we, uh, we're talking about this morning at church um, are the foundation of uh, our thanksgiving as Christians. So in Sunday school, we talked about the sovereign electing power of the Lord and the fact that we have nothing to boast in. It was His love and His choice alone uh, to, to enact the plan of redemption and save anyone. And that is the foundation of our thanksgiving. We're here because He has loved us uh, and sent His Son for us. And this morning in this passage, I want us by the end of today to see why we ought to be so thankful, not just when we come to church on Sunday morning, but so thankful every single day in how we live. So let's jump in. John 14, beginning in verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Okay, so first this morning, I want us to see Jesus promises the Holy Spirit again. Jesus promises the Holy Spirit again. Uh, so I spent a lot of time a couple weeks ago talking about that word there for helper that he uses. And I, encourage, I would encourage you, go back and listen to, to that sermon where I dig a little bit deeper into the Holy Spirit as helper. But just as a reminder, that's a word that's it's kind of hard for us to really encapsulate uh, well. H- helper is good because... It gets at the sense that there are many things that the Spirit is here for and not just, not just one thing. But helper is kind of a weak word in our language. You know, I, I said then that when we talk about helpers, I mean, we're talking about like assistance in a kindergarten class. That, that's what a helper is. Or, or, you know, a little boy getting the wrench, wrenches for his daddy. Uh, th- that's what we think of as a, a helper. But, but that's not who the Spirit is. And that's not how he is the helper. He is the helper of the absolutely wretched and helpless. He is the help. So don't forget that and and, and don't dare to think 
that the Holy Spirit, the helper, is a downgrade from Jesus himself, that he's just here, you know, wearing a little apron or something to to clean up after us. He is the ancient, eternal Spirit of God who wrote the Scriptures. He's the Spirit who hovered over the waters at creation. He's the Spirit who gives us life at all. So He's the Spirit. I mean, if I, again, if I could just, you know, in, in a James Earl Jones voice with all this bass, like rock you to your very skeleton, when I said that, I wish I could. He's the Spirit. That's who He is. And so here, Jesus, he's still comforting the disciples. He's, he's preparing them for the fact that he's leaving these poor, confused disciples who in their last earthly lesson with Jesus, before he goes to the cross, they still don't understand him. Once he's gone, though, the Father will send the Spirit in Jesus' name, and he will teach the disciples. He will cause them to remember everything that Jesus said. And I think we're meant to understand there that he's not just, it's not just remembering what Jesus said, said, but it's understanding it as well. The Spirit will teach them. And let's be real, they need it desperately. I mean, even after years with Jesus, they come across as entirely helpless here in this section. Their minds can't conceive of God's salvation plan yet. Their hearts don't sing with the beauty of God's eternal plans through the cross. They don't see it yet. But Jesus, he's not worried about that. You and I might be, though, if we were in his shoes. I mean, I think about how we worry about our kids as as they grow up and as our kids move out. Did, Did we prepare them? Are they ready? And of course, sadly, many kids aren't prepared and they're not ready because the work wasn't done to help prepare and ready them. And the world has raised the children. But we might see our kids and we might go, oh, goodness, are they ready? We certainly would never say, we couldn't say, it's impossible to say that Jesus did a poor job preparing these disciples, right? No, he did a perfect job preparing these disciples. But man, their final exam here is not exactly inspiring a lot of confidence. Peter doesn't get it. And then Philip doesn't get it. And then Thomas doesn't get it. And then Judas, who's not Iscariot, he doesn't get it. We're literally just going down the list here of all the disciples At the end, I mean, Jesus is just about to go to the cross. His time here on earth is over. And we're looking at the disciples, and you really have to wonder, have they been paying attention at all? But Jesus is not worried. This is to be expected. This is to be expected by the triune God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit know what they're dealing with. They're dealing with fallen man. Sinners who are dead in their sins, who are lost like sheep. They need a shepherd. And nobody paints a better picture of that, of these lost sheep, than the disciples at this moment. Intellectual knowledge is not just enough. Head knowledge, knowing the words of Scripture is not enough. These men knew 
so much, but more is needed. And the Father, Son, and the Spirit, they have a plan for this. And the plan is the Spirit. The Spirit is going to come, and He's going to teach. He's going to open the eyes. He's going to bring understanding. And of course, He does that, as you see in the book of Acts, and we see what happens when He does that. So Jesus encourages them here. In light of all that He said, He reminds them, the Spirit is going to come, and He's going to be here to teach you and to bring to mind all that you have heard. And then He says, He will leave His peace with them. He'll give it to them. It's it's not going to be the world's peace. It's going to be different than that. The world's peace, by the way, where where does the world's peace come from? I think at its core, the world's peace comes from ignoring God. The world's peace comes from pursuing your own glory and not God's glory. The world's peace comes through thinking only about this life and the things that are in this life and not about eternity and what comes after this. The world's peace comes ultimately through rejecting the truths that God has so publicly given us in Scripture. That's what the world's peace is built on. It's built on now, and it's built on you now. And what are you going to pursue? And what are you going to build? And what are you going to make? But of course, the reality is the world's peace always ends in the exact same place, doesn't it? Do you know where that is? Death. The world's peace always and forever ends in death. So why is it that we chase after the promise of that peace so often? That peace that's focused on us and what we can do, on what we are able to accomplish. Why do you chase after that peace? And so here, on the precipice of the unknown, as the disciples are trying to grasp that Jesus is going to leave them, Jesus gives them two commands after he says, I'm going to give you my peace. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. In other words, let them be at peace. And that's where I want to spend my time today. I want to talk about this peace that belongs to Jesus and what Jesus and the Spirit and the Father, what they have to do with our peace. There's a contrast here between peace and a troubled heart, a heart that's afraid. The world will feed a troubled heart. And so often the world feeds a troubled heart with more trouble. So often it piles reason upon reason for you to be afraid. We're very good at this. So many of us are very good at piling trouble upon trouble and fear upon fear. And our hearts are overwhelmed by it. And the world can't give the kind of peace that would truly root out that fear and that troubled heart. It's not able to. It won't satisfy, ultimately. It can't. It can, at times, provide moments of quiet, but it cannot give peace. You know, Rome loved to to speak of peace, the peace of Rome, which of course came about by the sword of Rome. But it wasn't a certain peace. I mean, you could have a momentary peace. You could have a momentary peace if you put your trust in Rome, but it wouldn't last, one, because Rome wouldn't last, 
And two, you would have to serve Rome in order to find that peace. And again, it's a peace that would end in death. So when they thought of peace here in earthly terms, that's the thing. It's earthly terms. It doesn't solve the greatest thing that disquiets your heart. The greatest thing that should trouble you, which is you're going to die and you have no control over that. And so here in the unknown, which is also something we're terrified of, how could, I mean, we have to ask this, how could the disciples possibly obey Jesus' command to not be troubled or fearful? I mean, it's kind of like when you're freaking out and somebody goes, hey, don't freak out. That solved it all, right? (laughs) That was super helpful. Thank you. I won't freak out anymore. How could the disciples possibly obey this command to not have a troubled heart and not be fearful? There's two things that are necessary for that. Understanding whose peace this is. Understanding whose peace this is. That's the first thing. This is Jesus' peace that he offers. He will bring it. It's under his authority. It's his peace. The second thing is going to be the Holy Spirit. Understanding that Jesus didn't just leave his disciples in this troubled world. He didn't just say, peace is coming. He said he left it. He doesn't just say, look forward to the peace that's coming in the future. He's saying, you can have it now. There is a sense in which this peace is for, it's exactly for this time when Jesus has left. That's what it's all about. So through Jesus and by the Holy Spirit, there's no other way to peace. So let's understand here the nature of this peace that is His peace. It's a true peace. It's an eternal peace. It is a peace whose terms are set by Jesus and not by you, and not by me. So first we recognize that he's here to bring peace to the greatest conflict in history. The one between God and us. He brings a new heart. He brings a heart that has new desires, new purposes to replace our troubled and fearful ones. The great war that's between mankind, the pinnacle of God's creation, and God himself, that great war has been fought, and and God won the war on the cross. He won by sacrificing his own son to bring peace, to make us a new creation. We're still waiting for the final victory, but guys, peace is here. The peace that matters. We get so worried and so anxious about all the wrong things, quite frankly. I remember a few years back, I had the opportunity to to spend the afternoon with an HVAC guy. Um, Random story that we we spent a few minutes talking. When he found out that I was a pastor, uh, as can happen, it brought up a whole new line of conversation. He said, hey, I got a question for you. And and we started talking, and, and he was just really struggling with a lot of things in life. Um, and, and so we talked, you know, I gave him some materials. I, I pointed out a church. He didn't live around this area. I, I pointed out a church um, and got him in touch with it. And then, and then we left, and we thought we went our separate ways. 
Uh, but as he left before I did, and then I left, and as I'm going down the road, I come around the corner, and there's this van that's in the ditch. I was like, oh, no. I mean, literally like 30 seconds time. And, and, um, and he said, hey, I, yeah, I don't know what happened. I wasn't paying attention, and I went around the corner. I went off into the ditch. He said, I've already called for a tow truck to come, and now I'm just stuck waiting. And so I, it was about to start raining. So I said, hey, I'll pull, hop in the car. I'll pull over here, and I'll just wait with you. We ended up, I don't know why, but we ended up waiting for almost two hours. He started talking again, and he started talking about his relationship with his girlfriend. And they'd been living together for several years, and, and he wanted some advice on just some relationship things. And, and, and he liked to talk, and so he just kind of kept going on and on about all these different things. And, and as he was talking, I'm sitting there thinking and just listening to him, and I'm thinking, you know, I could give him counsel, and I could give him advice on some of these things. I could give him some help on communication. I could give him some help on relationships. But when he gets done, what I actually said is I said, okay, I'm just going to be honest with you. Here's the thing. I could tell you some practical things to help there, but that's not your problem. Your problem is you are completely concerned with the wrong relationship here. You're not about your relationship with God. If you were concerned about your relationship with God, it would totally change the parameters of this relationship you have with this woman. It would direct them in whole new ways. It would break whole new avenues that are God-glorifying. But you can't start with being worried and concerned and fearful about what's happening with your girlfriend. I can't help you with that. Unless you see how it connects to first and foremost, you have to be right with God. Everything flows from this. And so, so often, we're concerned and fearful about the wrong things. We're overwhelmed with the wrong priorities. Jesus came to die for our sins here. He came because the most important thing to you, whether you accept it or not, is who you are in relation to the Creator God. And so that's the first aspect of this peace. This peace is between God and man. So the peace comes because of the turmoil of sinful hearts in a sinful world. You know, we wouldn't need this promise of peace if it weren't for sin, would we? So in order to give real peace, the problem of sin has to be addressed. And that's what Jesus does. He strikes at the enslaving rule of sin. Only then, after that peace has been accomplished, only then does the Spirit come. And the Spirit of truth teaches the disciples to understand the nature of this peace, to understand why Jesus didn't come as a conquering king at this time, but he came for the cross because our sin had to be paid for or hell would be our destination. So we need to recalibrate our priorities and our thinking right away. If all we're thinking about is what's happening in these decades of life that we have here on earth, then we're not seeing what God is trying to show us, which is that He has so much more in mind. And peace with Him, which is the peace that lasts for all eternity, is the peace that Jesus is going to bring when He leaves the disciples and goes to the cross. So that's the beginning of our peace. 
Is our peace with God first and foremost? Is that what we're concerned about? Is that what you're focused on? And so as we, after we understand the nature of the peace given, that it's eternal, that it's pure, that it's righteous, it has restoration of our relationship to God as its goal. It has eternity as its length. At that point, then we can talk about why we shouldn't fear and we shouldn't be anxious, but we should be at peace. When he says here, if you loved me, if you lo-, there's a challenge in those words. If they truly understood who Jesus is and they loved him for who he actually is, this is, this is the tension of, of everyone. They should get it. They should know who Jesus is. They should know what it means that he's the Passover lamb here at the Passover about to leave them. If they understood this, they would rejoice. They wouldn't be afraid at all because how could they be afraid? This is Jesus we're talking about. How on earth could they be afraid? Do you see that there is a huge measure of trust that we have to extend to Jesus. A massive amount of trust. In fact, it's all the trust that we have. We throw it on Jesus. He's the one who will bring us through. There is nothing he can't bring us through. If they loved him, that is, if they fully knew him and obeyed him, they would rejoice instead of being fearful and concerned because this is the Son of God. This is the Word become flesh. This is God himself. Why would they fear? Why would they be worried? Why would they think that he doesn't have this? Of course he does. They're meant to be comforted. The Spirit, ultimately, he's going to teach them. And and I think it's interesting here. He he focuses on teaching them, bringing to their understanding what has been said to them. Because there is a direct connection between what you know about God and your peace and trust in him. Do you want to grow your trust in the Lord and your peace in Him? Then learn more and more of Him. Know Him better. There is no end to what you can know about God. And every little piece of it builds your trust in Him. The Spirit teaches us. He does provide comfort. He's called the Comforter. But I think John Owen brings up an important point about the Spirit as a Comforter. He says... In his unique way, the comforter may abide as a comforter when he does not actually comfort the soul. That is, the Spirit may be in us, but we can still be anxious and we can still be fearful. And how can that be? Well, this is how John Owen describes it. He says that when the Spirit comes to sanctify our souls, to cleanse us, he does it in power. Owen says he comes to conquer an unbelieving heart. That's what the Spirit does. He conquers a sinful, unbelieving heart. But as a comforter, Owen says, he comes with sweetness to be received in a believing heart. He speaks, and we believe not that it is his voice. He tenders the things of consolation to us, and we receive them not. My sore ran, says David, 
and my soul refused to be comforted. The tragedy is that our perverse hearts just seem to dwell on and find an obsession with our fear and our anxiety. There is a part of our hearts, and it's a part of our hearts that's a traitor to Christ for sure, that would rather, would rather honestly, just dwell in our anxiety than do what Jesus commands here. We would rather hold on. And, and, and I say we would rather, and you might be going, it's not like I want to. But we would rather, we, we have to. There is a part of us that has to hold on to our fears and cry out, but you don't understand, Jesus. You don't understand what could happen if I don't nurture these fears. You don't understand what could happen if I don't watch these fears carefully like a snake that slipped into my bedroom and I sit on the bed and I watch it to see what it's going to do because I have to be ready. I don't know what I have to be ready for, but I have to be ready. We don't want comfort sometimes, I think, because we, we don't think we can risk it. We don't think we can risk being comforted because that's the exact moment when we let our guard down and we risk being comforted. That's the exact moment that snake is going to strike and the sky is going to fall and the whole world is going to fall apart. I know it. It's going to happen the moment I risk being comforted. The worst is going to happen. That's the terrible thing about our fear and anxiety. But just stop for a minute here. As I tell my kids, let's just take a deep breath. And let's just see the situation here in this text. You know, one of the gifts of aging, if a person is wise and they're paying attention, is that you get perspective. And you learn that most of the things that you feared, they weren't the end of the world after all. You do get through them. You can learn from them. You will grow and become something more than you were if you stay faithful to the Lord. But again, our minds, they work like an Alfred Hitchcock movie. It's the suspense that gets us. We don't actually see the monster. We just see the shadow out there somewhere, and then we fill it in with all the worst possible things that it could be, and we're not willing to settle with anything less than the worst nightmare that could possibly happen. No, that is the one that's going to happen. But perhaps you don't have the experience of age yet. The good news is this morning, you don't need it. It helps, but you don't need it. What you need is to be in God's word and trust the Jesus that you meet in God's word. You need the spirit to open your eyes to see this Jesus in this moment and to realize the spirit is teaching you truths that will shine the light on your future. And we'll show you there is no reason to fear. There's no reason to let your heart be troubled. No, not if you're Jesus' disciple. Not if your life is wrapped up in him. Not if you love him and obey him. He has provided what we need for peace on earth when he is not physically here with us. That's what he's given. 
If you're going out on your own, if you're living for yourself and not Jesus, well, then you should rightly be worried. Nothing good's going to come from that. But if you're Christ's, if you're his, all you need to do is see here in Scripture why you wouldn't be anxious and why you don't need to fear because you're trusting in him. And let me tell you something else. You will not learn the beauty of trusting Jesus. And you will not see that he gives you peace if you don't actually live your life. If you don't attempt things that feel beyond your ability for the glory of God, you will not learn what it is to trust in Jesus. If you do not go and do things that would normally provoke fear and find out for yourself that Jesus was actually there after all, then you won't learn what it is to trust Jesus. The, the, the men and women, the brothers and sisters who have most deeply learned to trust Jesus have done it because they've had to. What do I mean? Look at our final words here. Rise, let us go from here. Jesus was setting his heart, he was setting his mind to go out and do something here that is so far beyond our understanding. His heart was more troubled than our hearts ever possibly could be because he did know exactly what he was facing. And it was truly, literally, the worst possible thing that anybody could face. The wrath of the holy God. And yet he got up and he did it for the glory of God and for us. My old pastor used to say that you don't grow in Christ by staying in your room and doing nothing. And you don't grow in Christ if your only interaction with Him is sitting down at a table and reading the Word and not interacting with Him as you live your life. And I think that's true. You don't grow in Christ by just doing the steps that the world says that you ought to do and following along on the world's path of success and living and buying into the world's idea of peace. You will not learn to trust in Christ if that's all that you do. We were meant to live by trusting Jesus and his peace, his eternal peace through salvation his peace that passes understanding, his peace that's found with what he did on the cross, his peace that you and I, through opening up our mouths and proclaiming it to others, God may use that to save them. So we must do. I mean, Jesus is our shepherd. Jesus is our comforter. Jesus is tender and loving. Jesus is patient and kind. God would not put out the tiniest flame in our soul. He'll protect it. He'll feed it. The bruised reed he won't break. The smoldering flax he won't quench. He's more loving and gentle than we can imagine. But he's also go here, right here and right now, when he says, rise, let us go up from here, he is going to crush the head of the serpent under his heel. He's also the conquering king. And when he ultimately ushers in his kingdom at the end and he brings in all of eternity, he's going to do it as a warrior. 
He's going to crush his enemies under his feet. He is a man of action. He does things. And in this fallen world where sin reigns, where sin permeates, growth in Christ and the salvation of souls comes through doing hard things. Not through sitting back and doing nothing at all. Trusting is more than just an emotion that we feel. We're called to follow Him, to trust Him. So we also have to be people who act, don't we? We have to be people who do. We are not meant to be people who are frozen in place by anxiety and troubled hearts. So what do we do? Well, we come to Jesus over and over and over and over and over again. And we see what He has done for us so that we can get up and do. Men, men, the challenge for you is trust in God and actually do the work involved in living for Him. Husbands and fathers, trust in God and actually do the work involved in leading your families to live for Him. Have hard conversations instead of pulling away. Stand on your convictions and risk the fallout. Love your wife sacrificially and make decisions that put Christ at the center of your family. Say no to things in this world because it would be better and more godly to spend time serving Him by leading your family to know Jesus and live like Jesus. Men, stand up and do. Trust in Jesus. Young men, young men here, trust God and live for Him. Don't trust God and just talk about it. Do something with that trust. Tell somebody Tell others that Jesus is king. Be bold enough to live on your convictions when others are not living on their convictions. Because Jesus has you. He's got you. Young ladies, I would say the same to you. Trust is not just something that we talk about. Trust is not just something that we try and make ourselves feel. That's not how it works. We can't just try and summon up the feelings of trust. Trust is actually living in a certain way, risking the unknown because you want to see God glorified. Connect what the Spirit teaches us in Scripture to your actual lives. And trust everybody, young men and young women, and old men and old women, Connect what the Spirit teaches us in Scripture to our lives and trust that what the Spirit teaches us through Scripture is true and let's change our lives and live accordingly. He didn't just say He's going to give the Spirit to bring to their remembrance for no reason. He did it so that the book of Acts could happen. Living for others. When you want to give in to your feelings... Say no and trust God instead. Look around in your life and ask, who can I serve today? Who can I love? 
Who needs to hear about Jesus? What can I do with this trust I have in God? Have you asked that question of yourself recently? What can I do with this trust I have in God? Trust, it looks like the book of Acts, living for others, proclaiming Christ. It looks like Colossians 3, setting our minds on things above where Christ is and saying no to the easy lies of the world. One of the hardest things for us to do that involves the most trust is saying no to things that our heart wants. Trust looks like Hebrews 11. And all those who went before, living for God above all, risking friendships for God, risking livelihoods for God, risking lives for God. So Christian, whoever you are and wherever in life you are, what are you doing with your trust in God? Ladies, if you're married, I'm just going to keep going. Ladies, if you're married, trust God and live for him by serving your husband. Serving your family, submitting to his leadership by strengthening him and encouraging him to trust God and to lead. Trust God's design here. And that if it, if it does all fall apart, if the sky does fall, if the mountains do collapse, guess what? Jesus still has you. Whatever time of life that you are in, you are not meant to be frozen, but to live. Think about what's happening here. Jesus is encouraging his disciples here that when he is gone, he has plans for them to live. They are not meant when he's gone to just go, well, that happened. That's not what they're supposed to do. He has plans for them to live. He has plans for you to live for him. Live for Christ. Live for his church. Live for others. That's what he's sending the Spirit for. You know, I'll just throw that. Maybe sometimes you can't serve the way you want to. I mean, maybe you can't leave your house. But does that really mean that you can't live for Christ and for others? Of course not. Especially not in this day of instant communication. There are people who need your encouragement and your prayer and your presence, even if it's through the medium of a smartphone. Say no to social media and get on your knees with the prayer directory and pray, trusting because the Spirit has opened our eyes and He's taught us that God works through prayer. So trust that and give time to praying. Get on your phone and ignore the news for a while and send out some texts telling brothers and sisters in need of encouragement that they're loved, that someone's thinking of them, someone's bringing them to the Father. Men, we're bad at this. Let's own that. Text a brother and encourage him in what he's doing. Text a brother and say, hey, let's brainstorm how we can do something with our families for Christ. Let's work together here to live for Jesus. Do something radical and don't text like call. I'm just kidding. No, that's too much. Go visit. Don't, don't, don't call me. It may seem easier to just do nothing 
because it is easier. Let's be real. It's just easier to do nothing. But that's not what we're called for. That's not what we were given life for. We were given life to live, and trust looks like doing something, living for him. There's no joy in doing nothing. So find a way to serve. Find a way to love others. Be used by God for his kingdom. He has equipped you with more than enough to serve his kingdom, even if it's not the way you want to serve his kingdom. That's in God's hands too, isn't it? Rejoice in that. If you can't do what you want to do, don't be the kind of person who says, well, I'm taking my ball and going home. I'm not doing anything at all. God is the one who determines that. So what are we doing with our trust in the Lord? Maybe you're focused on all your inadequacies. Maybe you're focused on your inability. You're going, you don't understand. I can't do that. I've talked to so many dads, and I feel it as well. You know, it's funny. I've, I've said before, you can come and ask me a spiritual question, and, it, and, and I, I, I don't have any problem answering, talking. But it was, a, it was such a shocking experience to me when, when Ruth, as my oldest, came when she was like seven years old to ask me a spiritual question. And it was like a deep question. And all of a sudden, I was just like, uh, I don't want to mess this up with my kid. I don't know. Um, I'm not sure. Um, the, the stakes here are too high because this is my child. It can happen. Maybe you, you focus on your inadequacies and your inability. I would challenge us at that point, who are we relying on them? Yourself? Or the spirit that Jesus said that the Father was sending in his name? This is about trusting him. And again, trusting him means stepping out and doing. There's a joy that's found in that because there's a joy that's found in Jesus. That's what he says here. They should have trusted. He says they would have rejoiced that Jesus was going to the Father. They should have trusted that what's happening is the best thing for them. So look at two things here that Jesus tells his disciples. These men who have followed him for years, these men who have relied on him, these men who have pledged their loyalty to him and depend on him. He says here, he says, for the Father is greater than I. Now, Leon Morris says that this, is, this reference isn't to Christ's essential being. That is, that the Son is somehow less of a being in the Trinity than the Father. That's not what we're saying at all. They're, they're equally God. But to his role here as the incarnate Son, the incarnation involved the acceptance of a certain subordination, as is insisted throughout the New Testament. In this instance, this is because Jesus is here as a man in order to fulfill his role as the perfect man and the perfect God. And he is going back to the Father. That's the role that he must fulfill. Let's look at another verse, though. Just glance down real quick to chapter 16, verse 7. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And I just think about this because this, this involves a massive amount of trusts on the disciples' part. It's better for them that Jesus would go away. They can't see that because they have learned to rely on Jesus here in person for years. They can't grasp 
what he's saying. They will, though, when Jesus sends the Spirit. But they can't grasp it. This, right now, to the disciples, this is all an unknown. And it's a terrifying unknown. The man that they have staked everything in their lives on is talking about leaving them. He's not doing what they expected that he would do. He's not going where they expected that he would go. And so now, all of a sudden, the last years of their life looking forward, this is all an unknown. And it's the unknown that causes so much fear and anxiety. We have to watch for the unknown. We have to worry about what's going to happen in the unknown, don't we? Do you do that? Do you worry and watch the unknown for what's going to happen there? Jesus is telling them in this instance, no. That's not how this works. Do you know why? Because tomorrow is not unknown to him. There is not a moment that has happened, is happening, or will happen that is unknown to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And what's more, disciple, they have accounted for all of it. They're ready. It's prepared. It's done. Do these disciples really think that Jesus is just going to walk away and leave them to their own devices? As Paul would say, by no means. Of course not. He has prepared everything for them to have all that they need for peace in this world if their lives are lived for Him and if their purposes are actually God's purposes. He's prepared everything for them. And Christian, He's prepared everything for you. In this moment, Jesus is communicating to the disciples that what's about to happen is exactly what should happen, and it's good. The ruler of the world is about to step on the stage, but what does Jesus say? He has nothing over me. Don't be taken in by the fact that it may look like he's winning in this moment. Don't be taken in by the fact that it may look like I'm losing in this moment. That's the comfort. That's where our peace comes from. It's only going to come, though, if our lives are in Christ. If our desires are His. If His will is our will. Because it is the will of the Father. It is the joy of the Son to obey. It's the goal of the Spirit to uphold us and teach us through all of this. God has provided for His disciples when Jesus steps off of this scene and goes up to sit at the right hand of the Father. Everything is laid out for you and I to live our lives in peace. Not in fear and anxiety. Battle the fear and anxiety with Trust in God. They've got this. They've got you. Have confidence in Jesus if you're in Him. Now, if you are holding on to your sin, if you are not repenting of it, 
if you are not coming to Jesus for the forgiveness that he offers on the cross, I have to be clear, there's no peace there. You're left to your own devices, and that's going to just end up with you dying, and there's no hope, period, done. You will be condemned by the sin that you've done that you can't overcome, that you can't pay off. There's no peace apart from what Jesus has done on the cross. But the beautiful reality of this, guys, is if you want that peace, if you want that forgiveness, if you want that life in Christ, all you have to do is trust in Jesus. You turn from your sin, you repent of your sin, and you trust in Jesus for everything. I mean, it's so simple and it's so easy a child could understand and it's almost too simple for us to comprehend. Trust in Jesus from beginning to end. Be taught by the Spirit in His Word and trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts. Father, we battle so much with this simple command because we battle so much with dying to ourselves and living for Christ. Lord, I pray for those who are battling that right now. Lord, I pray for those who, who right now are holding on to themselves and, and unwilling to come to Christ and unwilling to believe and trust in Him. Lord, I pray that, that you would open their eyes to see the despair that ultimately lies down that path, the inevitability of paying for what we've done. And Lord, I pray for the Christians here in this room. I pray for, for us to, to rely on Christ to rely on His grace and understand it is sufficient, that the peace that Jesus won for us on the cross is perfect in every way, and that you, Father, Son, and Spirit, know the end from the beginning, work all things according to your will, and have provided all that we need for peace in this life. So, Father, may we die to ourselves and live in Christ so that we may live in that peace. May we trust you. We thank you for providing the Spirit to us, to opening our eyes. May we follow what we see and trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>